And it's Hmm. one of the best articulations I've ever seen around, you know, how the the importance of just ruthless prioritization and, you know, not signing yourself up for 15 activities, but rather for like one. And and that's the one that you go and you over deliver on. I loved it. And that that was finally like almost justification for this, for this, you know, habit of mine that I've been doing for years, which is, you know, multiple times a day, just saying like, am I really working on the most important thing right now? And and you'll find yourself sometimes realizing, I I really just want to finish this task even though it's not the most important one. And, and I have actually learned to simply say, well, if it's not the most important, move on, declare, declare bankruptcy on that task and just get to the thing that's bugging you. And you hear that little voice in your mind saying, like, that's really the one I should touch. Get ready for the Product Tea with Leah, your fun-sized dose of business, tech, growth, and product chatter. I'm your host, Leah, and it's time to spill the tea. Good morning, everyone. Grab your checkbooks and log into your banking apps as we have a special guest today. Over a decade ago, this guy consulted the big banks on digital leaps and realized something vital. Small businesses were not just being overlooked, they were being completely left behind by traditional banks. From four employees to a team of 50, with investors pouring in over $90 million, they built North One, a statement that every business, no matter how small, deserves to be seen, heard, and supported. Today, Hundred thousands of businesses choose to do so, depending on how you look at it. Welcome to the Product E, the founder of North One and one of my dear beloved clients, Eitan Bensuson. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Did you see how I rhymed your name now into this entire sentence? I love it. <laughs> That's pretty good. How would you rate this introduction from zero to fully topped up one million dollar bank account? Oh no, this is very close. You're like in the nine hundred thousands easily. All right. Well, okay. That's good enough now. Okay. Can you introduce yourself for the underfinanced people that have not heard of you? Yeah. So look, my name is Aitan Bensusen. I am the co-founder and the CEO of North One. You know, just as context, prior to North One, I spent about five and a bit years uh, working at McKinsey and specifically working with the larger companies and organizations. And a lot of the focus of my work was about finding ways to reduce the cost of running their finance department. You get mandates like, you know, it's costing us now about, I don't know, $50 million a year to run our finance ops. We need to make this 10. How do we do this? And so, you know, after having done about a half a dozen of these and more, I started seeing that about, you know, the majority of the gains that you can unlock was coming from connecting disconnected silos of financial data, processes that weren't actually good handoffs or, or a whole bunch of manual interventions that were needed by small armies of people. And so you start realizing that there is a, there's a theme here. And then a couple of years later, I started noticing that the same philosophy had moved from kind of the enterprise Fortune 5000 to now the mid-market. I started things like Ramp, and Airbase, and Divi, mm. and Brex, who were taking a product-based approach to connecting various parts of the financial back office for these you know, larger companies. And having grown up in a family of small businesses myself, I know all too well that the small businesses of the world don't have hands on deck to throw at a problem. It typically falls right on the owner. And so in my view, the the idea that this is not going to get fixed for small businesses. You know, enterprise solutions, you know, the salesperson doesn't get out of bed for a company of five people. And, and many of the bottom-up tools being built specifically for small business are not really thinking about connecting themselves to other tools and data sets that they use. And so in my thinking, the, the bank account was the hub, the connected hub of the financial back office for these businesses. And that's kind of where North One comes in. It is, of course, the core yeah. of it, you know, federally insured bank account with all the different money movement capabilities that any business needs. But more importantly, it's designed to connect your payables flows, your receivables, your spending, your counting, and kind of making it all just work seamlessly together. 
Now, that is a pretty cool thing, and we're going to talk about it more. I want to ask you two questions, and then I'm going to explain to you why I compare banks more like a visit to the dentist, at least in my thinking. Yeah. But let's go over this first. So, Eitan, what do people get wrong about you once they get to know you? So I'm, I'm an extrovert, like a 30 on 30 extrovert. I, I think by hearing myself, I think by arguing, I think by, you know, pushing kind of the way that, that, a, that an argument carries out. And so uh, I always, it means that I always have a point of view. I always have an opinion, even if it's incredibly loosely held. And I think a lot of people think it is, you know, a fixed opinion and is what I am deciding on, as opposed to me throwing something out there as a suggestion, hearing what it feels like to try to make this argument. And then I take that back. And sometimes just hearing myself make an argument I don't believe makes me realize I was wrong. But that, that's one of the most common misconceptions about me. Does that annoy you about yourself? Or is that just something that you feel like is being reflected by people around you? No, it's just, it's my jam. I, I've learned to better manage expectations. I, I, I even have a user guide at work where I say like, look, this is how I am. Like, just know this. And it's like, in, in, I write this in good faith. You're going to hear me say a lot of things and um, I'll change my mind on them quickly if, if the argument leads me there. And I think after a few times, people realize I'm not full of it. Like they realize, okay, I am, I am changing my mind when, when it makes sense. But at least I try to manage my way into it. I can't, I can't unwire myself is, I guess, my, my starting Yeah, point. well, that's fine. Yeah, I, I cannot do that either. Like for me, I think it's the other way around. I appear to be an extrovert, but I'm not. But we seem to be getting along quite nicely. So uh, yeah, yeah there's that. So is there anything that you're afraid of, either personally or professionally right now? I mean, for sure. Personally, I think it's this tightrope that I walk on to make sure that I keep the force in balance. You know, I'm, I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a, I'm a whole bunch of other roles and simply my role at the company. And, you know, time is a limited resource. And so I'm always scared that I'm anchoring too much on the company. I've never actually been too worried about being too much of a husband or too much of a dad. But I certainly do have fear that some every now and then I'm not getting that balance right. That's on the personal mm-hmm. level and, and professionally. It's just the fear that you kind of have this very clear understanding of what you, your team, your product is capable of. And there's just this fear that you might not live to like every single morsel of what you think it can do, either through, you know, just time, management, execution, anything. Every one of those is this little paranoid box that I I try to open up every day because uh, getting that wrong would be a real shame. And I think you've been at North One through quite some time now, you know, like also in terms of scale, in terms of the amount of money that went also into the business. But it is interesting to me that both of us, we tend to, like you and me, we have the same tool that we use every day. And I know that for a fact, because you sent me once a picture of uh, a piece of paper where my name was on it. And I suspect, (laughs) I suspect that every morning, that's at least what I try to do. I write down the three things that I really want to get done today. And then the day is kind of okay. And then you have meetings in between that are kind of disturbing that flow. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, are you still doing that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Look, I, you know, I actually got this as, as some very critical feedback once earlier in my career where someone's like, look, on the way to work, you got to spend your time thinking about what are the three critical things you've got to do today. And everything else is considered like you should do that an enemy of what's important. And I got into this habit of, you know, just you leave the house and you're just thinking about it. And I would typically write it on my phone or something. But then when, when work somewhat, you know, shifted towards work from home during COVID, I just got back to this idea of I write it down the night before or the morning of every day. Mm-hmm. I won't even check Slack or email until I know what my priorities are. Because then without realizing it, it'll be four hours into my day. I'm like, wait, what did I need to get done today? Because there's just so many things to choose to react to. So I, I absolutely do that. 
I do the exact same. And I still, to this day, I sometimes get the feeling that, oh, there's not enough on the list. And there's not a single day. There was not a single day where I was done with everything that came up through the entire day because the list also tends to get longer, right? So like you have your three or four items and then you yeah. start to work and you're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. There was this other thing as well. Like I could add this as well, right? Like the list is not long enough yet because Leah did not work 16 hours today already. So <laughs> well, why not just add this on top as well? And I just felt like it's always like, it's no matter how much you think you have experience in kind of estimating what fits into a day, you're never going to get it right. It's just not possible because either you get more efficient, but then your mind is tricking you that you can take even more on than you can actually do, or you just start to mix up efficiency of the hours that you have with stuff where you have to be really present. Just because you have eight hours of time does not mean that you can work eight hours at a high pace. That's just not possible. Yeah, so, you know, there's, yeah. A, there's a book I read. So I'd often been doing that feeling this was some sort of like duct tape solution I use for myself, right? Like I don't, I, I, you know, I only heard later in life that other people have this, like I got to write my three priorities. It sounds obvious, but I just thought like, hey, my brain needs me to write this down or it will mislead me. And then I read this book called Essentialism. And it's hmm. one of the best articulations I've ever seen around you know, how the the importance of just ruthless prioritization and, you know, not signing yourself up for 15 activities, but rather for like one. And and that's the one that you go and you over deliver on. I loved it. And that that was finally like almost justification for this, Mm -hmm. for this, you know, habit of mine that I've been doing for years, which is, you know, multiple times a day, just saying like, am I really working on the most important thing right now? And and you'll find yourself sometimes realizing, I I really just want to finish this task even though it's not the most important one. And, and I've actually learned to simply say, well, if it's not the most important, move on, declare, declare bankruptcy on that task and just get to the thing that's bugging you. And you hear that little voice in your mind saying like, that's really the one I should touch. You know, it was an interesting journey for me when I think about how I came into the, the business world, you know, like, so at the start, you start to have your tasks, you know, like you start to kind of find yourself, all of this is fine. And then, as you said, you know, like you get to this prioritization thing where you start to kind of organize tasks in the correct order, which is also a very important thing. Funny enough, I was having a call with a very good, like with a VP of sales that I respect highly. And what he said, you know, like I tried to get better at sales. You know, this was a couple of years ago, you know, like he, you know, he was trying to just give me, like teach me the ropes on a more operational level. And one of the things that he said is, is that, look, whatever you do when you're closing a leader, when you do anything, you have to get into the top three lists of these people's day. <laughs> right? Yeah. And otherwise otherwise you're not being taken care of. Your deal will not go forward. So you have to make sure that this is happening. And then I was like, yeah, so so how do you do that? Right? Like and then you have your tricks and so stuff and and you just try to also show your value, you know, like all the usual yada yada yada. And then he said like sometimes you can really also ask them to do that, right? So like, hey, am I in that list? Because if I'm not, then I don't want to waste your time. Right? Because you yeah. can really waste your time also with clients. And that was so interesting because this came now from the other perspective. And then I was like, hey, this is actually me. And mm-hmm. now if somebody asks me something to do, I had to start of learn and think about, will this end up in my top three list tomorrow? If not, then I can already tell them no. And that's yeah. the ruthless part of what you just said, right? So like this ruthless prioritization of, I cannot get to this and the yeah. other things I do in this priority order. No. Yeah, I totally agree. I learned to sell in a shoe store. When I was a teenager, I worked in a, in a sporting goods, but mostly shoe store. And I'll, mm. I'll never forget you, you know, I, I learned the hard way that you have to be able to kind of scope out someone who this is why they came into the store. They are going to buy the Air Jordans or whatever it is, and, and you, you will focus on them. And I learned because I would just see people wander in and would spend so much time showing, 
and they actually had no intent to buy or they were very loosely. And I just realized like my time is wasted, you know, when someone's just perusing, but I could tell, like, you see like that focus, like they walk right to the shoe rack, (laughs) they're looking at the things and then they're like turning to look for someone to help them out. That's the person you want to go to, not the one who is like, you know, interested in the latest, you know, few shirts or something that they they may or may not buy. It was just a, a, a really helpful learning process for me. No, I think we can learn in general much, much more from sales than we give it credit for. You know, like also like if you read on LinkedIn, everything is either about outbound <laughs> or right. it's marketing or it's product, but you can actually learn quite a lot because sales is, is a very, I think, I wouldn't say amoral, but like it's kind of, it doesn't care too much as long as something works, right? And, and that mm-hmm. in itself is also a quality and that you can actually take out into your own business. So I wanted to touch on something really quickly. I sure. was one of your potential customers for quite some time, you know, like in terms of I had my own businesses, small businesses and so forth. Yeah. And I remember a very specific story that I always wanted to tell you. Did I tell you the story about the Coca-Cola fridge? I don't think so. I did, right? No, not at all. Okay, so when you are founding a new company, and I was founding a board game store back then, mm-hmm. right? It's like Board Game Cafe. This was about eight years ago. Three employees, small thing, brick and mortar, you know, selling board games for English-speaking people inside of Switzerland because Swiss people have a problem in that they're not social. So those that do speak English, like the expats, they have a problem meeting others. And my idea was, you know, like to create a board game store because board gaming is a relatively yeah. big thing. Anyways, so Coca-Cola has a relatively big factory site, whatever, around the corner. And you can just call them and say like, hey, do you sponsor one of your fridges for our business? And then they say, yes, we do so. That's not a problem, but you cannot put in Pepsi or anything else, right? So like, and then they bring you the fridge, right? Like, it's a really like, you know, like one of these bag and Coca-Cola fridges and you don't pay a single cent. So the guy that was bringing me this, he was telling me that, look, I'm installing these all over the place here. And then I asked him because I always do. So like, can you tell me a couple of stories around this? And he says, well, there are so many businesses because I know exactly when I have to pick up the fridge again, Mm -hmm. when they closed and why they closed. And it is fascinating to me how many people get into business as a small business and they do not know a single thing about finance. We're not talking about optimizing your gross margin, you know, like from 30 to 31.1%. It's really just about people having stashes of money under the cashier and they have no idea how much money they have. It's just like, okay, if we have money there, we're just going to spend it and then taxes hit them and some other stuff. Yeah. And I found that very fascinating because also like when we got first in touch, you also told me what the mission is of the business, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of these companies are getting in trouble because they don't know how to manage finance. It's not that they don't make enough money. They just don't know how to manage it. Can you touch on this a little bit as well? And also like how, how you got on with this because it was also a personal frustration that you had? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I... I grew up with some of this, right? I mean, I grew up in, in a family where a lot of folks were small business owners and I just saw, I mean, I just saw the grind. I saw every night the dinner table would get turned into a finance department and the books are open and, you know, everything had to check out. And if there was a lost receipt, people would go berserk because you couldn't, you know, did we get paid? Did we not get paid? There was a whole mess. And I saw on a couple of occasions, the, a negative life-changing consequence of not having figured it all out. You know, I remember, you know, family friend, they didn't realize that payroll was coming up and rent was coming up. And at the same time, they just made a pretty meaningful CapEx investment in their business. And in the space of 72 hours, they went from thinking they were going to conquer the world, realizing that they were actually insolvent and they didn't realize it and everything changed. Um, so I, I grew up with, with like understanding some of that. And I think more broadly, as I started like scoping out the broader world of small business, I found out that, you know, 80% of small businesses fail 
because of cash flow illiteracy and cash flow mismanagement. And that to me was just this kind of in your eyes, that's, that statement was so remarkable. And you think about it, it's mostly in kind of startup land where you have people pushing the boundaries of revenue models and things we've never seen before. But a lot of small businesses, they're not looking to innovate on that. That's not like they're trying to, you know, like a, a coffee shop is a coffee shop is a coffee shop. And you're probably, if you have a decent location and, and some decent coffee, you should be okay. And so why do so many of them fail? It's not because their coffee was terrible. It's not because nobody walked in the store. It's because they weren't tracking their money the way that they could have. And it leads to just these unforced errors that typically close the business. And so to me, that was this like, oh, this little problem that I saw as a child, this is actually a, a kind of a national silent trauma <laughs> hitting, you know, families and businesses across the world, if not, you know, no. at the very least. And, and it's avoidable. It's completely avoidable at this day and age. I don't think I had a single class when I was younger about how to manage my finances. I can remember every French class that I had. I mean, nothing against French. I know you speak it, but like, <laughs> I'm just saying like, in terms of we've never really learned how to manage this. And I think yeah. it's quite interesting because of also how our systems are set up. So like, for instance, in Switzerland, you get hit once a year with the taxes, but they're going to be retroactive, right? So like 12 months are going to hit you and there's no mm -hmm. warning beforehand, like how much it's going to be. If this is your first year, you're just going to get hit. And I think... I was talking about this with someone and they said like, yeah, but like, so what is the problem if you're financially illiterate? It's not a problem. The money still comes in. The problem is if you do not know what you make, you're going to make mm -hmm. decisions based on a bank statement that you do not have. And yep. as you say, if payroll comes around and you cannot pay it, that person's going to quit. And that alone is also going to cost you a lot of money. The knowledge is going out specifically also in the United States. We have no labor laws that are even close to what we have in Switzerland, you know, like where you have like three months paid protected and so forth. So this yeah. is, I think people really often forget that, but it is a very good example of you have a target market and they have a very specific problem just because of how the system is built. Almost no one who is going into an SMB business wants to deal with the money side. Yep. There's just no one. There's no CFO going around and says, I'm going to found the business and then I'm going to figure out what I'm going to sell. It's always the other way around, right? Like you want to solve some kind of problem and the financial side is just like, ah, I have to do it. Yeah, and, it's, like, um, no. it's like flossing, right? I mean, people have to learn about the importance of things like flossing, et cetera. It's hygiene, no. but it's such an easy habit to let go by the wayside. And I think, you know, there's, and you, you rarely get into business because you knew that you were going to be really good at managing your money, right? There's typically some call to action, whether it's necessity, like I will sell the food from my old country because people will buy it and need to make a living to just appear like I'm a gifted hairstylist and I know that I can charge good money for this business. No matter what, the thought of like, and now I have to manage the money side of it was probably nowhere on your radar as you're getting into it. But then it hits you like a ton of bricks when you get that cavity or you get that, you know, you get that problem. And then you're just like, wow, I wish I had taken a couple of easy steps a long time ago to not be in this situation. So you also have had this entire journey for yourself. And I think you would consider yourself financially literate as well. So like North One, I think started with four people, I think at the very beginning as well, yeah. when you founded the business with Justin. Yeah. And so you were a small business back then. Yeah. Did you ever run into any financial problems in that sense? And I don't mean like cash flow problems, but like, you know, like any of these financial literacy things that that started to kind of come up when the company started to grow, for instance, because that is also a very typical thing for founders where you have control over one specific problem while it's small. 
Mm-hmm. But as you kind of grow, your time dedication goes somewhere else, you know, like maybe, yeah, maybe also don't enjoy doing the finance part of yourself. But like, did you also become an, a customer of yourself in some way? Absolutely. I mean, it, I hated the money management side of, of early <laughs> days. You know, you, you just want to build something that you can then sell. And I remember we didn't even have a payroll provider. So I'd be manually writing people payroll checks. And I had this little, you know, Excel model that someone had built for me to take out the right taxes from everything. And sometimes there were other things I had to take out. And it was just the biggest, it was such a nightmare every time where I'm sitting there with this old, you know, you can say pain in the ass. You can swear on this podcast. (laughs) It's okay. Go ahead. It really, it really was a pain in the ass. And yes, I mean, I had that. Then we had even just bills where, you know, Mm -hmm. if it wasn't credit card, you'd have this chance that like you're busy, you're working, you know, night and day and some invoice hits your inbox. And I just remember missing it. And then I had this very angry vendor of ours being like, you know, like, what is going on here? You know, I'm slapping late fees on you. I will not renew my contract with you. And I was like, what do you, like, I am only full of goodwill and good intent. And I just realized that I just, this was just something that, that flew under my radar. And so I had all these kind of, oh shit moments popping up early days until we started kind of thinking, okay, we need a process here. We need to kind of get, we had some sort of way to, to have line of control and we got, we wrestled with it over time, but it only mm-hmm. increased our conviction that this, this was a real problem. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting. And I think I subscribe a little bit to the philosophy, even though you didn't say that, but I get I subscribe a little bit to the philosophy that you have to let certain things burn. So it's really clear oh, absolutely. that there is a solution now in order to be taken. I think yeah, maybe you don't have to go bankrupt before you hire a CFO, but you get what I mean, right? Like the first moment where you're like, oh, if this would have gone one day or two days later, one of my employees would have been paid too late. And I almost made this mistake. Now is the time to actually hire someone to take care of this more professionally. Well, you know, a lot of founders have this hero mode they go into. So you're, you'll live with the problem far longer than you should, because you just, Mm. you have this mindset that like, oh, I can take that on. And I, I will make sure this, and, and the problem is that you, you often don't gauge at the best time when it, you actually need to get someone to manage that for you. And I certainly had a learning curve of a feeling, you know, just trying to take all these burdens on. And then one day it just is like, I'm going to drop many balls, not just one. And so we started realizing that we should bring on, you know, more support services. You know, in your early days, especially as a technology founder, you just want to spend money on engineering, on design, on product, you know, maybe on, on growth and marketing. The thought of, of, support services like HR, payroll, you know, they're there, you know, finance needs to exist, but you're just like, I got to put every dollar into building the product. And then there's a point when that just becomes a a dollar poorly spent. No. So leading on to this, there was at some point, the first success that you saw happening as well. And you knew that you could pour more money into the business. Can you walk us through a little bit to the first decision that you had to make, whether you're going to be a VC back business or whether you're going to be completely bootstrapped because so you had all the problems, but you also had the money starting to come in a little bit or were there other considerations? Did you know that this is going to be, you're right now at a series B still. And did you know it's going to unfold the way that it is right now in terms of the funding side? Uh, or was this like, did you stumble into it? I kind of had a hunch, you know, I thought that when I was early, early days, really trying to wrap my head around the problem, I'd interview, you know, easily 50 custom, fifty possible small business owner customers myself. My co-founder had, had done the same. And um, we knew what the problem set was. And then the question was, how do you back your way into a solution? And I don't think, I, I legitimately did not think on day one, this is going to go through the form of a neobank. Like I, it just, mm. it sounded like the craziest of all options <laughs> to, 
to, to consider. And so we thought like, is it like a data science thing? Is it a dashboard? Is it like, there's all these less costly options we thought could be out there until the intellectually honest answer was, I think that the best way to have impact on this problem specifically is not to add more things on into the life of a small business owner, but to actually you know, swap what they have with something that can just do so much more and consolidates all of these relationships and, and all this information. And so at that point, when I had that condition that this is going to be the path, I knew that there's no, I could work another 20 years and I still wouldn't have enough money to try to put together, you know, what Hmm. you need for a neobank, which is, you know, a long runway of building before you even turn the lights on. Remember, you know, today the world has matured a bit. We have a lot better BAS providers that can get you installed onto a bank in a matter of months. When we started, you were talking minimum six months from signing a contract to being able to start testing things with the bank. So we needed to have enough for a team to build a product, to get ready on the compliance side, to get ready on you know, a whole bunch of other things. And then you then go out to market. So it was just so, so clear that that was something that we'd have to do with the support of investors. No, that is quite interesting. And I think from my perspective, it would feel probably also scary because I would not know how to deal with any of this also on the legal side, because you definitely need also legal support, you know, like yep. <laughs> banking. I mean, I think the only country that would be worse in this regard is if you came to Switzerland, because we have very, very weird banking <laughs> constructs here. I'm saying this as a Swiss person, I'm allowed to. But I find this always very interesting when I have talks with people from any regulated kind of industry, you know, like also healthcare. There are just so many hurdles. And it turns out that if you do manage to actually take these hurdles, the cost to entry for competition becomes quite high, right? Like unless they're also like a neobank and, you know, like they they kind of go this, this same route. Were there any moments early on where you were just like, this is not going to work out. It's too much of a lift or like, I want to get out. This is too, this is just too much. I cannot deal with it. I can genuinely say I've never had the thought cross my mind that I want to get out. It's never even like, it's a kilometers away from my brain or miles, depending on if you're in Switzerland or not. But the, you know, the, there were certainly points when I thought like the world is closing in on me. And this is where I think it's just how I'm wired. I, I just get incredibly stubborn. Like I, I am like, I don't care what's going to happen. I'm not going to let go. And so the thought that like it could end was something that I didn't, it it didn't enter my mind. And so it's kind of sometimes your, your strength and then it's your kryptonite at the same time, because there are moments when that level of stubbornness, you just need to persevere when nobody else can see how you get to the next step in the journey, but just brute force that you don't know you had in you. But at the same time, there are probably things that I should, you know, that that will come and you're going to say, Hey, that's actually a moment when you should actually step aside, move away, unwind X, Y, or Z projects. And you're just like, well, my stubbornness gets in, like my desire to just absolutely never give up. And so you just hope that you have the right people around you to help calibrate your instincts. But I, I can talk about a few of them where, where it just felt like everything was closing in and you know, you're, mm. you're just in water with your nose just barely above it. No, that is quite crazy. I mean, for me, I had a similar story, not with that amount of cash, of course, but like I had a similar story where, it, where I could not turn it around anymore. And I think it is incredibly difficult. I think I agree with you because if you don't do it, then you don't have a chance, right? Like if you don't start running, then you don't have a chance of reaching kind of like the finish line. And I never really had an answer on how to figure out when is too much, too much. Because in my case, I did, I was too stubborn, right? But I also did not listen to advice from the outside. What was the price 
that you paid in these intense times? And how did you recover from this? I know you're also someone that pays a lot of attention to your bodily health and so forth. And what was the price? Where, where, where was it paid? Psychological trauma, <laughs> to be candid. You know, you create muscles that you, to protect yourself, right? You just insulate your mental health to say like, this is the only thing that matters and everything else is secondary. And as an example, there were moments in our earlier stages where we were, you know, running out of money, just variably running out of money. And I went months of every dollar I spent was, you know, myself literally, let alone the company was very difficult. And to this day, I still, I still find myself defaulting to, I can't, I don't feel comfortable spending anymore. Um, and I've had people like around me, thankfully tell me like, Hey, this is not a healthy thing to have. But when you go through that level of, of intensive pain where you must preserve this asset at all costs. And that's the only thing you need to do to preserve it long enough to get to this next step in your journey. You just, you're just wired. You become obsessed, obsessively focused. And even if you're not there, it's still, it's still a ghost, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Or, or as an example, you know, there are, there are times when you're feeling, you know, that there, there's a whole series of risks. You know, we've had, you know, partners who have decided to shut down, you know, like the vendors that shut down overnight and, you feel like, how am I ever going to replace it? And all of a sudden you just, you never stop being paranoid about like, Hey, things feel calm right now. What's about to hit me? Like there's this, I, it's very difficult to find pure bliss that lasts because I have this instinct now that has just like learned to say the second you don't have like a dragon to slay, that's just because there's one around the corner. You just don't see it yet. And I know that those aren't necessarily healthy, but you can't get rid of them. And so it's taken me a lot of focus and um, having good people around me to help me keep those in check because there are different forms of growth. And this is actually something that I discovered. So it's one thing to orient your whole being around, I will not let this fail. It's another muscle and motion to orient yourself around, I will make this the biggest success ever. And being able to flip between the two is a deliberate and intentional decision. It doesn't just kind of happen. And so that's been something that I spent a lot of time trying to kind of rewire myself on as the journey's gone on. It's funny because we talked about this already, I think, last week in a little bit of a different context. And I actually thought about it. And I, I think I slammed you a little bit. And then I said, like, you know, like, just snap out of it, like that kind of stuff. But I don't think I'm, I'm that much better in this regard. Because when I was much, much younger, I ended up in a really, really bad situation. And I had to take on a lot of debt. Debt, which, you know, consecutively I was owing to my father who actually bailed me out in some way, right? So like he was mm -hmm. my big bank. And <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the stuff. And then I was paying that back over years through my bad conscience that was kind of driving me. And that was such a dark place to be dependent mm -hmm. on, on others. And, but at the same time, not being able to provide for yourself or others. Right. So like, that's, this is also a very interesting thing because it always matters more that if you cannot provide to others than for yourself, which is ironic because if you do not feed yourself, how are you supposed to feed others? Yeah. And I think this kind of reflex is still around. When I went fully independent and I kind of let go of my full-time job, I went, depending on the day, you know, like how I slept, how my hormones just were that day, I went from, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. I'm going to be bankrupt the next week <laughs> to I'm going to be a millionaire within months, whatever. And it's just ridiculous, like from the, from the factual side, like if you look at it, like really just what is there, it's very obvious that there's no need for this extremism. 
But as you said, it can really help if you can trigger it because I don't think also myself and you included, we would not be where we are today for whatever you consider success if we didn't will it into existence because you have to believe in something that yeah. someone else doesn't. That is per definition necessary because otherwise you compete with everyone else. Yeah. And that may be smart. Maybe we have survivorship bias. I don't know. Or it may be stupid. But like, yeah, I actually kept thinking about this when we talked last time. Well, there's, yeah. there's one there's one trap door that you can fall into which you never get out from again. And I've seen that happen. And, and as soon as you feel like any of the adversity you're going through is because you are the victim, it is almost like a one-way street outside of ever being able to fix it. Like it's just as soon as that mindset takes hold and it's all about what's happening to you, et cetera, I just, I find that that is one of the surest, it's like a, it's like a slide and you just, it's so hard to stop that. And it's, you know, and that's, I'm, I'm very grateful. I think just from my own upbringing and people I've met along the way that that instinct was not one that I had. And so you, you could have had just excruciating pain, but it was always something around, I have agency, I can act here, I will find a way forward versus feeling you know, helpless that the world has done this to me. And then you get into grievances and you know, it's, it's easy, it's, it's easy to fall into that on your journey. And I've seen friends who really struggled to kind of rewire that. And I'm very grateful that I've had that kind of resilience built into me from, from an yeah. early age. I don't know where it comes from as well, but I think I always try to over-rationalize stuff that are really harmful on the emotional side. And what I mean with that is, is that I try to always kind of understand that, okay, everything is a numbers game. And what I mean with that is, is that, look, if you... And I'm not saying that I can be anything that I ever want to be. I will never be a cosmonaut in this in the Russian space program. It's not what I mean. <laughs> but <laughs> but if there is a specific chance, right, and it may be 30% higher or 30% lower than what I think it is, it's still just a matter of how much work that I put into it. And I firmly believe this, right? So like if I'm lonely and I, you know, I feel lonely or whatever, then I need to go date. It really depends on how much effort that you put into the top of the funnel. And yeah, but as you said, like the moment you kind of utter the words that, oh, it's just bad luck or I'm the victim in that sense, that is not to diminish someone else's experience. It's just that that moment you stop trying and that moment, the chance cannot hit anymore. No. It's not to say that people aren't getting bad luck, right? It's just simply how you react to it. And I think some people, they just can't do anything and, and there's true tragedy like that. But in, in many cases, it's a decision implicit sometimes that you've decided that this is just happening to me and this is my sword in life, you know, especially in the entrepreneurial community. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm focusing specifically on people who are like, you know, either working in companies, building businesses. It's just so easy for that to happen. And I think it comes down to one thing you said, it's just, it's a self-awareness question too, right? You have mm. to know that like, yeah, if you, if, if I want to go and be like an incredible hockey player, yeah, I'm kind of setting myself up to fail because I'm probably not, you know, the best. Like I could play 20 hours a day and still not get to the best of them. But if I actually am in a place where I have a chance of succeeding, then you're actually able to have some sort of a cause and effect relationship between your, your mindset, your determination, and your ability to make progress. And whether or not you go you know, 100,000 feet in the right direction or just 10 will depend on a lot of other factors outside of your control. But the fact that you can actually move in one direction is the important thing. I think that's true. And I think it also touches a little bit on, the, um, on this imposter syndrome thing that is always going around as well. Like mm -hmm. I talk about this quite a lot in terms of, so I posted an article, I, I think you've seen it as well, on how to write on yeah. LinkedIn or in like at a public forum or whatever, because this paints such a picture. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to express themselves, but as soon as they have to do it where people can actually see it, they start to become afraid. And I think 
there's two factors that go into this and it touches a little bit on what you just said. And that is one of them is, is that you think you have to be better than you are yeah. or like that you can be, which I think in 99% of all aspirations that you want to reach, you could reach them. You don't have to be the best in the world to be happy about anything. You don't have to be the best tennis player in the world. It's just not, it's just not necessary. And then the other thing is, is that you completely overestimate how good the others are. And yeah. I think it's a little bit the social media effect as well. Like if you look at my stuff or like also on LinkedIn, what you see is the stuff that gets reach. Mm -hmm. Because it gets reached, there's more likelihood that you see it. But all these failed experiments where I have no one reacting to my stuff, you know, I've just been around the block. I know also how to filter that stuff, right? Like I don't want to paint a picture that is unsuccessful. And yeah. we have built systems like this, right? So like we, we kind of do this a little bit to ourselves. And that's why I'm thinking like, look, work and passion beat talent any day, yeah. any day. And look, in various flavors of, you know, imposter syndrome, however, you, you know, there's different ways to call it. But I think the the thing that I've been fortunate is that it's always been exciting for me to say, hey, I feel like I know nothing now. How do I actually like have something to say about this? How do I wrap my head around this thing that I feel I am completely inequipped for? And because I enjoy the process of getting good, anytime I feel that little like, well, I am not qualified for this, how could I be qualified? What do I have to do? And then I start, you know, trying to figure out the path forward. And that's, that's been a fortunate tool for me because I do it sometimes even autonomously. Do you think this comes a little bit from our childhood as well? And that's, okay, now this is going to go a little bit off, 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 off the beaten track. Try be lying like, down on a couch. Do and, uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're going we're gonna to cure each other now in the next two minutes. So I think I always ask myself why we think it's necessary to almost assume that the level of skill, you know, like, oh, you did such a good job, right? Like, so also like mm -hmm. how we, I kind of talk to children, you know, like, oh, look how great what you just did is, or you got a really good grade compared to the others or whatever it is, right? Like all of this is kind of in relation to others being worse in some way yeah, or that you just nailed something. And do you think this is like part of the problem where we're just like, and I don't mean that we should just like put participation on, on, on the kind of same level, but I feel like the way that we think about self-value is very much connected to whether we are better than someone else. And I think there's kind of a problem in this, right? There, there really is. I don't know whether I'm bringing the words out now, right, in the correct order, but I think we have the sports mindset, you know, like there's always like a first one, a second and a third one and the rest doesn't matter. Well, it's, so it's, it's a little bit both at the same time, because there always will be a first place in things, right? Like, there's just, that's kind of how a lot of these things shake out. But I think the, the lack of focus on effort and determination at the expense of simply saying, where are you on the scale, is I think where it gets out of balance. Because I think at the same time, you got to be ready to fact in life that there will be a first and a second and a third place in many, many places, and you probably won't be in number one, two, or three. And you have to also just be okay with that. But at the same time, if, if you don't feel like the, you know, the thing that you're bringing is this constant effort to get better and to make progress, even for yourself, yeah. you know, that I think is, is really lacking, at least, you know, in the, as I was growing up, you get, you know, an eight on 10 on your tests, you know, in elementary school and you get a, some, you get a star if you got above a certain thing. So you're implicitly told like, this is good. And this is bad, but it doesn't tell you that some kid might have been studying for weeks with their parents just to get a six on 10. And that was the greatest success for them. And, you know, some other person, you know, woke up knowing the, you know, how to spell the words by heart gets nine. And I'd say that, you know, there, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of emerging information that shows that, you know, 
people who have to work hard early on tend to also work hard later on. And I think that's, that's a really big learning that I think the last, since when I started growing up to now, like I think that, that the fact that we now recognize that is a pretty big step forward. I can 100% attest to this fact, but from a different point, because I was so lazy at school for a very specific reason. So I had the unfortunate talent of hearing something once, <laughs> and then I was smart enough to ace the tests. Like, like I never had to study. Yeah. And everybody was envious of me in that regard. Like They're like, oh my God, this is so awesome and so forth. But then what happened is at some point you have to study because not everything will be presented in front yeah, of you, like in front you. of a teacher or whatever. It catches up with you. And I never learned how to really work because all the successes that I had in school, like these, all these really good grades, they came from me just paying attention. And I kind of enjoyed this, right? Like my ADHD brain that was everywhere, right? But like, oh, yeah. this is cool. This is a new thing. And then the, the vocabulary tests came around from French or like Spanish or whatever. You cannot improvise on these. That just does not work. And yeah. for me, that was a very, this was a, this was a horrible experience. And it took me at least seven to eight years to really kind of figure this out afterwards. And yeah, interesting. Did not expect that I would go back to school in this talk today, but like this was, this. Uh, I, so I subscribe to this 100%. I wish I would have learned this much, much, much earlier. I agree. For, for wherever it's coming from. Yeah. There's this book, Leah, that I would say that I've, I now send this to family, friends who are just about to go to college. It's called The Upside of Stress. And it's this way to reframe what anxiety and stress does for you, as opposed to it paralyzing you when you kind of mentally say, okay, I get it. This is going to be hard. And I'm going to like, you know, work through this stress that will help me be better. I mean, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying, probably butchering the theme of the book, but it's almost this like aha moment saying like, you know, it's not about feeling like you're constantly, you know, spiraling, you know, into the, into nowhere, but rather that stress is actually built into us to let you stretch yourself. So like to get from V1 to V1.1 of who you are, it's probably discomfort. It's probably not like a graceful, you know, a graceful stretch. It probably looks pretty ugly and feels pretty, pretty terrible. And that book to me has been just one of my favorites. So what do you do now when, and I know you obviously have the perfect life. Everything is figured out. The company will go to a $1 billion evaluation, but like, let's assume just hypothetically you get into another stressful situation. So how do you balance it out nowadays? Like, do you have specific rituals that you do not compromise on? How do you make sure that you still kind of strike the correct balance? Because you said you can put in the work, but so how do you take care of yourself also on the other side? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I think now when I do have stressful situations, I do get hit for the first five minutes. I'm like, oh my, like, oh geez, this is really tough. And I feel, you know, a little bit like I'm in free fall, but to develop, I've developed this. All right. What's the worst that's going to happen right now? Like what is the absolute worst thing that can happen if this thing completely flatlines? How do I, you know, and, and is that the end of my life? Is it not? Like, and then I start kind of building back up the case of like how to really put something in focus saying, hey, what this is, this is a marketing partnership that's not working out that I really wish it would. Or this is, you know, and, and all of a sudden you realize that the scope of what it is can be contained. And then you actually, I, not you, but me I, as a person, I flip into the, oh, this is actually going to be really fun to problem solve. How cool will it be after this when I'm like, here's how I got through this roadblock. And so I almost imagine that like, okay, this is actually what it's all about. This moment right now, that's the montage in the movie where you see them going through this, this terrible sequence and then they come out of it and they're you know, better for it. And so that, that, that switch flip has been you know, really helpful, but it's, it's painful. Like it's never enjoyable, right? But I think that's not the point. Pain is the way. Like that's kind of 
that is kind of very often the case. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah, I yeah. would say so. There's a whole lot of cues that I got over the course of my me growing up that you want to avoid pain, and I, and I get like mm. physical pain, of course, right? But you, you just want to avoid these things. And I actually, you know, realize that sometimes the best way is just through, and that you know it's going to be painful and it's going to be terrible. And I, I give myself this is something I decide to be resilient and force myself through difficult things just because it's who I am. So I will go and run at five in the morning, in the morning, and I feel terrible. I hate it. It's freezing. There's snow. There's ice building on my face. But I just have this mindset that like, this is the way. Like, I will get through this because then like everything else in my day just feels so much, so much easier because I'm building upon like having gone through this tough thing. I have like things like that or, you know, different ways that I challenge myself outside of work sometimes simply to remember that I am resilient as a person and that, you know, work can be one application of that. And sometimes it feels overwhelming and it's your everything and you're, but it's about building a thick skin for at least in my case. You know, this is interesting because I've been trying a new thing. So one of the things that I usually do is I try to establish habits, you know, as everyone else, you know, like you do this for like 10 minutes a day, you do this for whatever. And what I try to do is that the commitments that I make with myself I'm trying to kind of measure how many of those am I holding and how many of those yeah. am I actually failing. And then at some point you just say like, look, today I'm going to make a specific commitment. I don't care what's going to happen today in what kind of miserable way that I am. Even if I notice it's like a quarter to midnight, if I said I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't care how miserable I'm going to be. And when you frame it this way, you're going to be much more careful in like what kind of commitments you do make to yourself, right? Like you need to yeah. go really through this kind of pain and then you kind of go to this. And I feel that what really helps me in kind of framing it in this way is that emotion, right? So like these negative emotions that are coming, you know, like, and then it's in your head and then, you know, like you cannot get it out. And I feel like much more people have this than, than would admit, like almost every entrepreneur has this, right? Like something happens and then it's in your brain, even though yep. it should not take, it should not occupy that much space. What has really been helping me is that I don't remember where I actually read it, but the nature of emotions has always been twofold. One of them is they always feel worse than they are on a rational level. And the other thing is they always feel like they're going to last forever. <laughs> and you could bet that these two things are not true, right? So like this kind of already helps me like in the emotion to just say like, whatever, you know, like it's going to go past and so forth. So I learned from my editor today, from Alex, I have to ask you whether we could keep this in, but mm. I learned from Alex that he has a very good method where he says like, Imagine yourself that you have a place somewhere in the world. For me, it's an orange tent somewhere in the desert. And that's where I put all my worries. And then I close the curtain and I come back to it later on. As silly as it sounds, I'm going to give this a try. And uh, that's where I'm going to stash away my emotions now. Just just watch me doing. It's called, I think, the end of history fallacy, where if you look at yourself two, three years ago, how much you've changed since then. Yet you feel today, this is who you're going to be forever. So how could you ever evolve past whatever you're, you're feeling? And so we almost feel that like, yeah, despite all the change we've gone through, you know, you're just, this is who you are. And you're just, this is your permanent self. And so the problems you're facing now are intractable. And this is not, not I think it's from something I, I got from listening to like Andrew Huberman or one of the, the incredible like, yeah, that's possible. That sounds researchers like researchers that are doing this. But yeah, that 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 too was like an unlock for me. And you know, the, you know, the, the the real to me the shame though is that it's taken. I would call like pop science in a way 
to bring these ideas forward rather than the formal education system that everybody is going through. If you don't read the right things or listen to the right thing, you don't have this knowledge. It doesn't kind of make its way to most people. And that's a real shame because if I was going to rewrite a lot of the curriculum in some schools, I'd say you need a module on this stuff early on. Give kids these tools really early as opposed to kind of like wandering into them later in life when so much of your wiring is already set. You know, it is interesting because I, I'm not sure the curriculum is also the problem. It's also like how we teach things and like how we kind of encourage conflict handling. The person that I was in my beginning or mid-20s, I would not want to work with that person. I have no idea why I did not get fired every two weeks. I really don't know. And this is just because I was just so unreceptive of criticism, right? Like, it's just like, mm-hmm. it was just not possible, right? Like, because Leah knows everything. Yeah, but like, you're 24 years old. Like, no, I know everything. It's fine, right? Like, I've seen everything. <laughs> it's like, you never really learn this. And yeah, but I think school is just very, very slow to pick up on this. I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to start a fight over education because I don't have children and I'm messed up anyway. So, you know, it is what it is. So, I don't know. So, Tell me a little bit right now, I know you've started now your own podcast and I've seen this with with great joy that you also started to do this. And I know it's going to be absolutely amazing. I think you have a couple of episodes out there already and I highly Mm -hmm. encourage people to also tune into this. Can you tell us a little bit what the idea behind that was as well? Like from also from your personal side, like why you feel like you have to grab your teeth now into this because creating content on a scale like this is not just like a two week hobby. Yeah, no, if it's a if it's a flash in the pan, it doesn't actually do very much, right? It's the consistency. So it, it actually starts with our customers. You know, like I, I have no deeply seated desire to be on a be on my own podcast. Like it's not something that I that I yearn for right now. But I, I in talking to customers, you know, we started something at, at our company called the Top One Thousand, and the Top One Thousand was we took a list of our top one thousand customers, and then everybody you know, at the very least in, in the highest levels of leadership and management had to be on deck to calling, I think, five people over the course of a month, having a script we wrote and kind of documenting and sharing the knowledge. And a lot of people who are even just junior people at the company took this up so that we could go, you know, over the course of a month, talk to close to, you know, I think 250 was our goal for month one of these top 1000. And so there was just so much richness that was coming out of that. And I think one of the things I picked up between the lines was, how much they valued learning how to be better business people. And I know that we offer one level of support, which is what we call a connected banking platform that allows them to connect various parts of their finance department and around the bank account. And that's kind of, let's call it like the infrastructure level. But you know, we would put out things like SEO or they would show me a guide that they picked up from someone else's you know, tips on how, and the customers were saying like, I didn't know about this, even if this is not something that is, you know, the textbook that you hear at Harvard Business School, like this is actually something that is moving the needle for me. And I heard enough about this hunger for information and I'd say kind of very practical information on how to become a better business owner, manager, practitioner, whatever you might have it. And so I said, you know, we have this one unique thing, which is we have convening power as a company. I have the ability to, you know, reach out to a lot of folks and bring them in and possibly you know, disseminate their knowledge across our customers. Because the best thing that we could do for our customers is to make them more successful businesses. If we do yeah. that, they win, we win. And so it became this, this quest to say, well, what is the best way to bring them more knowledge? And I have found that we then asked, well, how do you actually pick up knowledge? So many of them were listening to YouTube channels, to podcasts that were 
very industry specific. And so we realized there's just this amazing opportunity to bring people that they may not have heard of, ask some very practical and tactical questions that are not necessarily related to banking, right? It's usually in the business management, financial management, and then actually send that to our customers. So every time we, we release a podcast episode, that's actually because we've sent that to our customers and said, okay, here's what you'll learn in this episode. Definitely listen to it if, if these things are of interest to you. And I think part of the, yeah. the commitment we make is that we're constantly bringing subject matter experts, either very industry focused or more broadly to our businesses that they might not even know about. And, and if it moves the needle just a little bit for some of them, I think it's, it's just a huge win for, for all of us. Yeah, and this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. This is why I made such a hard cut now to the podcast, because yeah. I feel like this is a very product-led kind of channel that a lot of B2B businesses have to learn. This is not about releasing a handbook of tips every six or seven months. This is really about continuously giving some tips that are really insightful to people. And yeah. I just wanted to kind of frame this around one thing that is very interesting, because you are very much rooted in this SMB segment that yeah. is relatively small. And when we talk about enterprise businesses and how they try to build their brands or like they struggle with talking to more or smaller enterprises, the big difference is, is that for enterprise customers, you tend to really optimize on the bigger numbers, right? Like this is how can I squeeze out 0.1% about this and that, right? That's very, very KPI driven. Whereas with smaller businesses, by and large, and this is not just for banking, this is really for all products that we sell, it is becoming almost an emotional topic, right? So like, hey, look, this is a thing that I just struggle so much with. It occupies my mind every day and I cannot deal with it anymore. I don't want to deal with it, but I cannot hire a full-time person for it. So yeah. is there something? And this is the thing where the first time you deliver something good, they're going to remember, oh, this was a really cool tip. The second time you do it, they're going to be like, okay, you're actually the source for really good advice. And yeah. then after the 10th or 15th tip, this is exactly then how you have a chance of acquiring a customer if they start to ever run into a problem with their own bank account. Because yeah. then they're going to come back and say, you know what, I'm actually going to come to you. Well, I do that for other products too, right? Like there are people who put out really great stuff and I love it. And then eventually, years later even sometimes, I'm like, oh, you know what? I remember that company that, that just gave me this guide or, or I saw this thing. And I'll tell you, like, it's even more that I think it's, it's actually a multimedia approach. So the podcast yeah. is this one very visible and visual asset that we have that will constantly be growing and, you know, hopefully finding relevance for folks. But we found that our construction customers, we have a lot of customers who are in construction, construct general contractors, people who work around that space. And they too, you know, we talk to them and they say, look, I'm running a 10 person company. It's, a, it's not small, right? It's, I mean, it's not minute, but it's certainly 10 people's meaningful to have underemployment in, in, in construction. And they're starting to feel like I, I have so many things I wish I knew about. So we actually put out a 45-page ebook on the seven-day guide to financial construction management. But the difference for me was that I spent about a dozen hours on that thing. It wasn't like chat GPT, garbage in, garbage out, just turn it into a PDF and sell it. I sat there, we took it apart, we looked at tons of other guides that were out there. We really tried to put as much value in that and then we sent it to folks and we even sent this to some customers while I was in draft form, right? Being like, hey, is this a, becoming a useful thing? If I was kind of, you know, I did day one here. If I did day seven, <laughs> would you be still willing? And so then we have this, you know, a book format for some folks. And I think this is where we've tried to take across many different forms, like free, free web templates. And we have, we spoke to a lot of folks who said, you know what? I really got this wrong. I can't estimate my projects properly. I don't know where I'm on budget. So we just said, well, what if 
you know, what if we just gave you this form where it's like, here's what I budget on labor, on parts, and where did I come in? And if you do that a few times, you're going to realize where you're off. And just that was enough to start getting somebody moving. And so I think this is really where all of these things are not connected to banking per se. They, they lead no. naturally to it, but more importantly, they're connected to the health of the business and what matters to them. And, and it's about relevance. If we're not relevant to what they're doing, then you just become, you, you, someone throws you in that tent in the middle of the desert and says like, what the hell come back to this? Yeah. And I think that's a very good point as well on how you should look at it as a company in terms of your content strategy. I think if you put out 10 of these guides, right? So like, let's just say, you know, like over time, you know, like, you know, which ones performed the best and which ones did not do so well in the end, you still know which one actually, like if you have consistent tracking and you also know what happens to them, then you can put paid advertising into it. And this is kind of like closing the loop, right? So like you start to learn from trying to generate, like really genuinely delivering value instead of just like telling an agency to do some paid advertising on some generic topics and, but it's not connected to your business. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of this, of course. I mean, we would not be working together if that wasn't the case. I think I have a ratio of 1 million to 1 of impressions to paying customers. I think that's pretty (laughs) accurate by now. Because I think I crossed like 15 million right now on LinkedIn or something in terms of impressions. But like, this is the thing, right? Like you cannot put a price on the individual person who's reading this. And it's not about, hey, are you ready to buy? Hey, 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 can you, is, is the book good enough now? Can you open an account? You have to work hard for customers' trust because as I said in the intro, these customers have been not well served by the big banks because they were not valuable enough. And uh, yeah, that's why they take their business to you. And I, I think there's, there's something about, I'm going to use a, a weird word I don't use often, but it's like the soul of your marketing, right? I found that I know what I like hearing from. I, I know what I ignore and I know what doesn't speak to me. And I think, you know, when I hear a marketer speaking to me, no, no offense to marketers, like they're doing the right thing. I can tell that they're not, they don't know what a business owner is thinking about. They don't know how to use the languages that I know. And so I said, you know, if, if we're going to put out content, it's got to be in a voice where I can look and say, hey, I could actually read this and say, you're not full of shit. You're talking about something that is relevant and you're not trying to like, you know, be, be slimy with me or, or just be too abstract that you could have just said a, a whole bunch of nothing because you had a really good, you know, subject title and I clicked on it. And it almost is like the thing that I'm doing on all of our outbound marketing content efforts is this sniff test where we have to be able to look at it and say, would a business owner whose time is, is scarce look at this and say, you know what, that was worth 30 seconds, 20, I don't care what you're asking them. If they don't think it was worth it, we shouldn't have put it out. And I think that's a, a big shift because I think you get into you know, company building and SEO and people think it's a volume game, put tons and tons and tons of content out and eventually, you know, and then if you actually try to look at like the logical sequence, there may be some industries or some place where that's actually really valuable. You know, like if you ever Google the, you know, this number called me, who is it? You know, like, yeah, you want to have like every possible number combination and you'll, you'll rank. But if you're talking to someone who's in a little more of an intellectual journey with you as mm-hmm. they go through the steps and you have to convince them and then emotionally you have to convince them that it's not a volume game. It's actually, it's a quality game. And I think it's almost a, an understanding game. So how do we fix this as founders and entrepreneurs? And I think my, my, my solution for this on marketing is relatively simple. It's through the incentivization and the goals that we give them. So they cannot be like MQLs that are just top of funnel, but like they're incentivized in some way, like through the entire funnel. But man, I can tell you, I'm writing a guide right now on sales compensation because I've always been talking about like, so, you know, like if you have SDRs, if you have AEs, 
how do you incentivize them so they really take care of the customer and not just about the size of the deal while at the same time not deprioritizing your own business? Mm-hmm. It is a minefield. It is difficult. It is really difficult yeah. because you cannot take the entire money just out like this from a sales yeah. rep. It's just not possible. And at the same time, you 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 kind of want to balance it without completely nuking and or like de- relegating them to customer success agents, which they are not either. And yeah, so for marketing, I think we're on a good way, like in tech. But for sales, there's just no standard sales compensation book out there. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Maybe. But Leah is going to release her guide soon, so we'll see. We'll see I what happens. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe I'm going to get trashed by it. So we'll see. MVP. <laughs> yeah, let's just see the MVP. It's just my career, right? <laughs> hey, Todd, thank you so much yeah. for this. We went over an hour. How should people get in contact with you? How big should their businesses be? Who do you want to talk to? Where should they do it? Yeah, well, you know, even if it's not the person listening, if you have an aunt, an uncle, a wife, a cousin, a kid who runs a business, if it's not you that has somewhere between one to 20 employees, you know, somewhere in America, reach out. Not even because I'm going to sell you, because I'm going to tell you about what we do and you know, offer to help. You can get in touch with me, easy, Twitter, you know, at Aitan Bensusan, LinkedIn, still just search my name. I'm easy to find. And honestly, I mean, these are, it's funny because it's the people who are thinking about, you know what, my, my cousin is running a candy store and I know that they're struggling with this. They think of us, we might speak to them for nine months and just say, hey, take all of our guides, take all this stuff. It's okay if you're going to bank elsewhere because over time, if it's not them, they'll spread something nice about us to someone else who's really looking for something new and it, you know, no. karma moves around. Yeah, well, it's almost a product-led growth, isn't it? So, yeah, who'd have thought? <laughs> and that's the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. It will all be in the show notes. And that's it for today. Thanks, Leah. This account is closed. Thank you so much, Ethan. Boom, we're done. Thank you so much for listening to The Product Tea with Leah. If you don't have enough yet, you can subscribe to my podcast right now at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or you can head to my website, leahtarin.com which is L-E-A-H-T-H-A-R-I-N.com, where you can find much more of my material or just want to work with me. 